Welcome to the Skype a Scientist Live podcast. Today we're going to be hearing from Dr. David Steen, reptile expert, snake lover, turtle saver, and tank top aficionado. Dr. Steen runs the conservation nonprofit, the Alongside Wildlife Foundation, which supports conservation efforts around the world. He's the author of the book, The Secrets of Snakes, and currently works at the Jekyll Island Authority's Georgia Sea Turtle Center. Here's Steen. Okay, here we go. Let's see. Okay, we got the... We got a question from Dark Master, uh, who is actually a very pleasant person, I'm sure, despite the name. They want to know what is the most poisonous snake in the world. And the first thing that I want to point out uh, is that when herpetologists talk about snakes that have this toxic saliva, we call it venom. And the difference between venom and poison is venom is something that's injected into you and poison is something that is ingested so if you're going to eat a toad that would be poison and if a snake is going to bite you that would be so the question is what is the most venomous snake in the world and it's kind of a tough question to answer because try and think of a way that you could design an experiment to figure that out uh, what you could do is look at all the people that have been bitten by snakes before but the thing is that different snakes will inject a different amount of venom that they bite. And when you're looking at a patient, you don't know how much venom it was. Also, the people that are bitten are different in lots of different ways, too, uh, whether it's their baseline health or how they got treated after the snake bite. So it's really hard to look at the data that we have now and say, which is the most venomous snake? What we can do is take mice and inject a certain amount of venom into those mice, um, but like I said, some of the different snakes, even in the same species, will vary. So, with all those disclaimers and caveats out of the way, the two most venomous snakes are probably Australia, Southeast Asia snakes, uh, the taipan, and the brown snake. Okay, Heather H has a question. I have a bearded dragon, and sometimes he opens his mouth and leaves it open. He isn't gasping or anything, but I wanted to make sure that is normal. I think it's, these, are, these are animals, and they're individuals, and they've got their own things going on. Sometimes somebody will walk into my office and see that I'm doing this really weird thing, like sitting here with my mouth open or asleep or whatever. And it's just what we happen to do at the time. So that could be the case with your bearded lizard. Maybe it's just relaxing. However, I always tell people if they're concerned about the health or welfare of their pets, then that's something that they should talk to a veterinarian about. Okay. What's my favorite reptile? Well, I started working at the Georgia Sea Turtle Center earlier this year, and I had very little sea turtle experience before getting here. So it's been a really neat experience to learn about these really large, incredible species. These are hundreds of pounds, and they live for decades. And they're really kind of a fascinating creature. And I know that when many of us think of sea turtles, we think of this cutesy creature. But I kind of think of them as these tough, rugged survivors that have lived through the perils of the ocean for many decades and struggle out to shore. So I, I think that. Right now, I'm going to say larger, sea turtle. 
So I'm, I'm hearing from the chat that bearded dragons open their mouths all the time. So this is a cause for concern. Here, here first. How do snakes exchange sperm? Well, in a way that's not too different from the way that people do. Snakes, male snakes have a structure called a hemipene, and that gets inserted into the snake's cloaca, and that's where the magic happens. I've received a bunch of questions by email, so I wanted to jump in there, here, there. It's hard to understand. Everything is frozen. You might have to speak up more than normal because it's like a double internet compression <laughs> problem. Okay. We're dealing with a double internet, and I don't know if that's ever been accomplished before. So thank you, everybody, for bearing with us. Bearing with us. Don't book the suit of a noodle. You're just going to get the hurt juice. And uh, that's probably the wisest thing you're going to learn today. That's from Dream. Something. Okay. Dark Master hears me perfectly. So let's go with that person. Very sensible. So, what is the smallest kind of snake? And how big are snakes when they're born? Is a question that came by email. And these kinds of questions are, you know, I need to say beforehand, there's. 3,000 different kinds of snake. So these answers are going to vary. That said, in North America, one of the smallest snakes that we have is the DK's brown snake. And they are so small that you would need about 10 of them combined to equal the weight of a single penny. So these are really small, uh, light creatures. And then on the other end of the spectrum in North America, we have the Eastern Diamondback rattlesnake. These are foreign live. These are big, big snakes, uh, but they're not that big either. Um, they're about 40 grams when they're born. So if you were to take an apple and cut that in quarters, it would be roughly equal to a quarter of an apple. That's how big a baby Eastern Diamondback rattlesnake will be. I have a crested gecko, and when he got when we got him when he was a baby. And he's growing, and he's not growing very fast. Really slow growers. Mm -hmm. You know, slow is relative, but if you're providing it with enough food and proper conditions and light, then you should see growth rates being relatively high when they're young, and then slowing down over time. Okay. I've got half a question from Crystal. I'm just waiting for somebody else to text something and then the question will be going up so I can read it. Is the issue with habitat destruction an issue with reptiles? Yes. So there's probably four or five primary causes of um, conservation threats to all species, whether we're talking about mammals or birds, invertebrates, reptiles. And habitat loss and habitat, the loss of habitat quality is the primary reason for our current biodiversity crisis. Lots of people talk about climate change, and there's 
likely to be impacts of climate change in the future. Uh, but right now, the big problem is habitat loss. Because if an animal doesn't have the unique features of the landscape that it needs, it's, you know, nothing else matters, it just can't live there. What would your educated guess be about animals 200 years or shorter? Will they have different traits or will they be hybrids? I think over time, as we move species around, species that normally were isolated through various means, like mountains or rivers, I do expect that we're going to be seeing more hybridization in the next 100 or 200 years, but I still think that we're also going to have a lot of unique species as well, same ones that we have today. Have I ever gotten bit of um, when it comes to non-venomous snakes, I've probably been bitten by a hundred or so, uh, but you know, who keeps track of these things? When you're talking about venomous snakes, I've never been bitten by one, and that's because I'm extremely careful and deliberate, and some might say even boring about it. When you watch the television shows, you know, there's people jumping around, they're yelling, they're flailing their arms, and that's the television show that's trying to entertain you. Uh, and it's risky behavior. A lot of the people that are doing that kind of stuff have been bitten by dangerous snakes. So I'm really conservative and quiet and slow. So I've never been bitten by a venomous snake, and I hope that I never will. There's a lot of uh, bearded dragon questions, and, uh, questions related to pets. And I'll help you out if I can, but the I'm, my expertise is more wildlife ecology and the study of animals in the wild. So I don't necessarily always have very good knowledge of how to take care of those animals in captivity. How many eggs can a reptile have in a clutch? It depends on the species. We're dealing with thousands of different kinds of reptiles. So for some turtles, like a stick pot, they might lay one or two eggs, uh, but we also have the mud snake in this region, a really secretive species, and they can lay over 100 eggs. So that really varies. I had a question about um, sperm storage in snakes. Some snakes, they will mate, and the eggs and the female don't get fertilized right away. They can be fertilized many months later. And the question is, how do you do it? And that's a tough one to answer because we don't really know what the snake is deciding to do or whether this is a physiological response in relation to environmental conditions. But we do know, regardless of the mechanism, which probably relates to their physiology, they can store sperm in these tubules in their reproductive system and use it later when they want to fertilize their eggs. How can we help save the different habitats for reptiles and other animals? Well, you can start in your backyard. You can think about how the landscape is changing, how property is being transferred and developed. You can look into local organizations like land trusts that are trying to preserve these properties. You can look into larger non-governmental organizations like the Nature Conservancy. They often purchase properties and then manage it themselves. 
were donated to the state or, or federal agencies that allowed it to certain land. Also, voting. Um, often you can find politicians that have different positions on how they prioritize conservation. So familiarize yourself with how those politicians feel about habitat conservation and vote for the individual that is that has a policy that's most consistent with yours. Another question that came through now related to regeneration of tails and limbs. And this person wanted to know what species do it. And it's kind of widespread in reptiles, but the most famous example are the lizards. And lots of different lizards can regenerate the tail and to a lesser extent their limbs. For some species, Dropping off the tail is a defense mechanism. If a predator is trying to attack it, it will drop its tail. The tail will be squiggling around in the dirt, and hopefully the predator gets distracted by that piece of tail. Uh, it's, it's something that happens regularly for them, but it's still kind of stressful, as you can imagine. There's a lot of energy uh, in that tail. And also, there's a long healing process. The tails will often grow back for some of these species, but sometimes they're a little stumpier or they're a little discolored. So it's kind of a last resort for a lizard. So when I'm dealing with a lizard like a skink that often drops their tail, I, I will often decide not to catch it, just to leave it alone because I know that dropping off that tail is a normal response, but it also is, is stressful. What's the difference between a cobra and a king cobra? Well, a cobra are, is a word that we use to refer to a group of very similar species. And these are all elapids, which means that they're in the elapidae family. So they're kind of closely related to our coral snakes. So that's cobras. And then the king cobra, Ophiophagus anna, is one type of cobra. So king cobra is a species and cobra is a group of species. Crystal, Dan Crystal Daniels says, can you discuss invasive species? And invasive species are a big problem for our species and it's a concern for those of us that are interested in the conservation of biodiversity. Invasive species are basically an animal that's taken out of its native range by us, put in a new area, and then they become established, their population grows, and they start having negative effects. And uh, that's a problem throughout the globe. And reptiles can be the victim of invasive species, or they can be the invasive species. And we see that in South Florida, where Burmese pythons uh, have become established invasive in South Florida. The most likely explanation is that these animals were associated with the pet trade in values. And now it's a problem for our native diversity because they eat a lot of stuff. What is your opinion on the death of Harambe? Um, it was sad. Why can't leaf geckos grow back their tails? 
well, you know, why can't you grow back your arm if you lost it? It's just not in their genetic makeup. And different species have different mechanisms, different adaptations for coping in this stressful world of ours. And unfortunately, not all species have the same tools in their toolbox. Heather says people need to do research before buying animals. And uh, that's not a question. But I'll say that it's a good idea to uh, understand the responsibility that you're taking on before you buy a pet. And that's particularly true for things like green iguanas and sliders, which can go relatively big. They live for a long time. They're a big responsibility. I really want to get a snake, but my mother is scared of them because she thinks they're going to eat my three pigs. Um, sounds like you're interested in a relatively big snake or you have extremely small pigs, but always listen to your mother and uh, she knows what's best suited for your particular situation, I'm sure. Uh, what is the project you're currently working on? So at any given time, we have uh, half a dozen or so different projects, but kind of our flagship project here at the Georgia Sea Turtle Center is the monitoring of the nesting females, nesting loggerhead sea turtle females that come onto shore onto Jekyll Island and then they, they nest. And so our team, which is during the field season, the nesting season, which is going to be May through August, we have a team of eight AmeriCorps members, a few interns and volunteers. We go out every single night on the beach and we try to intercept these females as they come up on shore. Now, if we see a female coming up on shore, we'll, we'll turn the lights off on our UTV, our, our all-terrain vehicle, and we're just going to sit in silence and let the turtle keep crawling, hopefully up to the dunes, and that's when she starts building her nest. And when she starts that process, then we can approach her, and they kind of go into this pattern. I won't necessarily say it's a trance, but they're really not very vulnerable to disturbance. They probably don't find us that much. And so we'll identify the female. Often they have little tags in their flipper or a passive integrated transponder microchip in their shoulder. That's how we identify the email and we can kind of figure out their history, their behavior, and then we can kind of protect them. So that's kind of the big project that we're working on now. The season is winding down. Uh, the last female nested, I think, in early August. And over the last two months or so, we've had the babies emerge from the nests and, and walk out to the ocean. So that's been kind of an exciting, exciting time. A question that came in on an email related to how to tell the difference between an iguana and a Komodo dragon. Now I should say that there's about three dozen different kinds of iguanas. So keep that in mind. However, when we're talking about iguanas, often we're picturing one species in particular is the green iguana. Scientific name is iguana iguana. These are the animals that live in South America and Central America, and they're very popular pets here. So they're called the green iguana, that's their name. And in fact, they are often pretty light green, uh, neon green in some cases. And the big males will sometimes have these orange uh, tints to them as well. And they're highly arboreal, which means that they climb trees a lot. 
So if you see a bright green big lizard in South or Central America, they've also been released in South Florida, climbing a tree. That's probably a green iguana. Now, if you're in an island off of Indonesia and you see this olive green lizard just kind of walking towards you like this, sticking its tongue slowly, uh, that's a Komodo dragon. And it would be kind of interesting if you saw a green iguana out there because they would want there. So that's the number one way you tell, are you in South America or are you in Indonesia? But they're both really big lizards. Komodo dragons get quite a lot larger. But I think if you look at the way that their body is formed, you can see one is built for climbing trees and quickly escaping, uh, climbing around and doing all that fun stuff. And the Komodo dragons are kind of these big bulky lizards that are built for walking and jumping. Are pangolins reptiles? That's an interesting question because pangolins are often said to have scales, uh, but those are different than reptile scales, which are made of keratin. Um, so it's, it's a similar looking structure, but the origin is different. So pangolins are mammals. They have hair and fur, um, not reptiles. You already sent a question and I didn't answer it. Feel free to send it again. Sometimes when I'm talking, it'll scroll up and I won't get annoyed if the same question pops up a few times. You want me to do any scrolling for you or? Sure. They want to go okay. up and down. I think I got those. So while you all, how many people are in the room? Um, 36. And some of those okay. may be classrooms. Okay, so we, we need at least 46 different questions. <laughs> Silly questions are okay. Um, another question that came in from email was, what is the smallest reptile? And the answer is the dwarf gecko. There's two different kinds of closely related species, and they only get about a half an inch long. Really tiny things. And the largest reptiles, on the other hand, you've got the leatherback sea turtle. A really big leatherback sea turtle would be about 2,000 pounds. That's a ton. And that's kind of tied with a really big saltwater crocodile. They can also get up to be about a ton. That's the heaviest reptile. Now the longest reptile is going to be a reticulated python or an anaconda. And these things can get, you know, 20 to 25 feet long. That would be a really big one. Um, they don't get as big as you see in the movie anaconda. Do chameleons lay eggs? Yes, they do. If so, how many? I don't know off the top of my head. A few. And that brings up an important point. I think sometimes when you see scientists on TV or in the movies, they're portrayed as these people that just know everything. 
this like these trivia masters and they have the answer to everything. And let me assure you that is not true in real life, at least when we're talking about me. Um, there are smarter scientists out there. But what I do is you can see the books in the back here. So I got sent a number of your questions in advance. And so I don't just know the answer. I had to do the research. So if anybody's out there feeling intimidated about being a scientist, I just want to reassure you that sometimes when you see them on TV, they have a lot of preparation. They know what the questions are in advance. Being a scientist is more about knowing how to find out the answers rather than knowing all the answers right away. Do you think a Jurassic Park situation is a real possibility? That was quite the situation, wasn't it? Um, I don't know. If you go back in time 50 years ago, there's things that are so commonplace right now that we take for granted that we just couldn't imagine. I think that we are experimenting a little bit with what's called de-extinction. But when we're talking about this kind of stuff, we're often referring to mammals that went extinct not too long ago. So there's often still flesh and hair and tissue and things preserved in, in the ice. It's possible we might be able to do something fun with those and who knows what might happen in the future. Um, but hopefully the security protocols in place in the future are better than they were in 1994 when Jurassic Park movie came out. Miguel has one question. Let's hear it. Okay, well, while Miguel is typing the follow-up question, I will respond to Crystal, who wants to know where I'm broadcasting from. I'm broadcasting from Jekyll Island, Georgia, and this is where I work. I'm a research ecologist at the Georgia Sea Turtle Center. Come on down and visit. We're a working turtle hospital, so lots of turtles come in that are sick, or they've been hit by boats, or they've been caught on fishing gear. And we, there's a whole hospital crew down there, and uh, they rehabilitate the turtles, and then hopefully we are able to release these animals back in the ocean. And we also have a lot of research going on here. And if you come down and visit around June, you can join us on the beach as we look for nesting females. So hopefully you'll check out Georgia Sea Turtle Center website. So broadcasting from Jekyll Island, Georgia. Not space, depending on how the sound quality is through these various um, screens here. What is your favorite research project? I talked about it a little bit earlier, but I think it's a really cool opportunity to work with these loggerhead sea turtles on the beach. These things live for many decades. The babies leave the beach, and then they are out in the ocean for 30 years or so before they become sexually mature and come back to the beach. So it's neat to think about how the babies that we see going into the ocean, maybe one or two will return in three decades when I'm 49 years old and uh, give birth on their own. Uh, and it's, it's cool because many of the individual females have been given names just for fun. And they only breed every two to three years. So 
we know in a given year, we'll say, okay, it's been two, three years since Angela arrived, so we should be expecting her. And then sometimes they'll show up. So that, that's kind of cool. It's, it's kind of a neat opportunity. As a research ecologist, often I am thinking about the population level, but there's only about 40 or so individual females that will nest on General Island each year. So even though we're talking about a population, there's a relatively low number of them, so you can get to know them as individuals as well. Okay, so Miguel's question is, how did you learn all of this? And the way that I learned all of this are the books that you see right behind me. Uh, I also have been really lucky to have been able to go to school for a lot of these things. So I got my bachelor's in zoology at the University of New Hampshire, my master's in ecology at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry, which is the world's longest college name. And I got my PhD at Auburn. And a lot of the stuff, you, know, you can get all the formal degrees that you want. You're never going to really take a class that says, how big does the snake get? What's the, what's the food of this other turtle species? That's something that you can learn on your own by looking at field guides and reference books. What extinct reptile do you wish wasn't extinct? Did you know there is an extinct type of turtle called Archelon, which was probably between four and 5,000 pounds. That is kind of an amazing thing to think about. That's a huge turtle. Uh, so I think that would be cool to see if I had a pick an extinct reptile that I would like to uh, see around. Let's go with Archelon. We live in Southwest Florida and have a lot of issues here with dead marine animals, including turtles. Yeah, you had the red tide recently, which is a natural phenomenon, which was probably made worse through some human factors. And that was a huge problem. Um, I can't see the second part of your question. Um, is it possible to restore the balance in water? And if there is anything that we could do to help? Yeah, it's a good question. So, like I said, it's a natural phenomenon that was probably exacerbated and made worse by human impacts. So I would look into red tide, look into how it's formed, how it gets made worse, and then think about whether there are certain policies or positions that you can support. Uh, for example, maybe environmental discharge uh, may have exacerbated that. So that might be something that you would advocate against maybe stricter environmental policies in some case, that could be something that you would be in favor of, that you would want to support. Uh, is it possible to restore the balance over time? You, these ecosystems are resilient. So if we give them an opportunity to, I'll say the word heal, but I'm using it loosely, then often they will give it enough time and the opportunity. Have you found any fossils of extinct animals like dinosaurs? Uh, not personally. It's interesting. There's a beach not too far from here. It's called Shark Tooth Beach. And a lot of shark teeth, you might have guessed, wash up there. 
uh, including megalodon, which is an extinct animal. That's apparently a controversial statement in some circles. But not and Miguel, circles. In, in, in all circles. Uh, Miguel says, how did you learn this in there? Which I think I tackled school and books and uh, talking to other people that are interested in the same subject. It's a great way to learn more about these things. We have a, a specific question about how something that you might want to learn, I might be able to give you some more specific advice. Can I ask a question? Yes. So let's say we are going to prepare to vote in the fall and we want to know, is, is there like one resource where we can find like uh, collated all of the representatives' uh, opinions and stances on environmental issues? Yeah, I think the first stop I would go to if I was interested in a politician's position on issues, I would go to their website, see uh, what they are talking about, see what they prioritize. People are going to often be saying they're for or against the environment, so you kind of have to read between the lines because everybody is going to say they're for environmental policies and support nature conservation, but you really have to think about, well, what does that mean? What does that mean to them? And another resource that you can check into is the League of Conservation Voters. This is an organization that uh, helps you navigate these waters and figure out which politicians may be supporting environmental conservation in a way that you would like to see. I want to specialize in reptiles in my vet career. How much different are reptiles compared to the normal pet pets in terms of medicine? Okay. Well, first of all, I take issue with you saying that reptiles aren't normal. They're very normal. They're as normal as any other group of organisms, except perhaps squid, which I think we can all agree are fairly Fantastic. <laughs> Uh, so, I'm not a veterinarian, however, the basic physiology of, of many organisms is shared, but there, there's going to be a lot of specialization. These are ectothermic animals, and when we say ectothermic, that's the word that we use instead of cold-blooded. Basically, we used to say, call them cold-blooded because they responded to the external environment to regulate their internal temperature. The cold-blooded makes us think they're cold, right, but they're actually just as warm as us in many cases, and sometimes they can maintain that temperature more precisely than we can. So we don't say cold-blooded anymore, we say active. And that's gonna be a lot different from the normal animals like birds and mammals, which are endothermic. They generate their own body temperature and their metabolism is a lot faster. So I think I'm not sure, but I think in the beginning of vet school, you're going to be learning a lot of the basics, and then you can go into kind of a more specialization down the road into uh, individual groups of animals. The next one down says, have you ever worked with real animals? Real? R-E-A-L? Yep. Yes, I do. That is a big component of, of what I do. Um, we are working with turtles outside. 
whether we're dealing with freshwater turtles, we'll go out and catch them in traps. When we're talking about loggerhead sea turtles, we are waiting for them to come on shore, and that's when we work on them. I have a long history of working with animals outside in the field, uh, learning how they use the landscape, what are they eating, how are they relating to each other. So that's been the focus of my career is real animals. Um, a question that came in from email that kind of relates to something that we were just talking about is that they were unclear on the benefits of being cold-blooded. Again, that means ectothermic. Why would an animal be that way? And sure, it's nice to be a mammal like us, to be warm in the winter. We can generate our own body heat. But think about all the energy that is required to keep us at 98.6 degrees all the time. If you're boiling a pot of water, you need to keep that heat on all the time. That's a lot of energy. So that's going on inside of us. And that's why we have to eat all the time, too. We're eating uh, multiple meals every day. We're looking, we've got to keep that engine going. Now, for ectothermic animals, they don't have that necessity. They don't have to constantly be trying to keep their body at that temperature. That's why they don't eat as much either. So that's kind of uh, less stressful life. And um, so that could, that's one benefit of ectothermia, i.e. cold-blooded metabolism. Is there a question under Kate's um, question? One there? you've already answered. Um, people are always asking me how old different species are, and somebody was interested in how old crocodiles get. And, you know, it's hard to say when an animal is living out in the wild and we see it just this huge animal one day. We don't know when it was born, we don't know when it was going to, when it would die. Uh, but we do have uh, captive animals, and some of these animals have lived for many decades. A hundred years old and more is possible for some crocodiles. That would be really old, but it's possible. And in the wild, we don't really know because think of the study that we would need to design to figure out how long these animals live in the wild. If they're living 80 years, then we need to have a study that's going on 80 years, right? And this is longer than we're gonna live. So we would need to have these, set up these long-term studies and monitor populations over time. And unfortunately, we just have it generated that kind of research framework for a lot of species, but the age of crocodiles can get up to 100 years old. Okay. Uh, Grant is asking me if I have ever found any fossils of extinct animals like dinosaurs. We talked a little bit about the shark teeth and how there's megalodon shark teeth down in the beach nearby. I haven't found any myself, but sometimes they show up in interesting places. We often think of the Dakotas and out west and the prairies out there as a good place to find dinosaur fossils that they are. But even in our backyards in Alabama, there are a great wealth of fossil deposits. 
there's even a species that's closely related to Tyrannosaurus rex that was found in Alabama. So always keep an eye out. I would see turtles and somebody was interested to know a little bit more about the situation that emerges when there's a baby sea turtle in the nest and it doesn't make its way out on its own. In general, after about two months of incubation, the sea turtles will hatch and at night they generally come out at the same time. Uh, if it's a quote, quote successful nest, then a large proportion of the animals will emerge at the same time and make their way to the ocean. Sometimes, for whatever reason, there are turtles left behind in the nest. Maybe they're weak, maybe the sand caved in the wrong way, uh, and they're stuck in there. In the state of Georgia, that's the goal of putting an animal on the endangered species list to learn more about it and, if necessary, make interventions that allow their populations to recover. So, in these cases, we want to put in a little extra effort to make sure as many babies survive as possible. So we will excavate the nests after five days, figure out how many naturally hatched, and if there's any babies left behind, they're called stragglers, we will let them make their way to the ocean. And each year, we keep one straggler, and we keep it at the Georgia Sea Turtle Center to serve as an education ambassador. And after about a year, then we release that animal into the ocean. Okay, we've got a question that says, do some snakes stop eating to eat bigger prey? I know what you're, I think I know what you mean. Like if I know I'm going to the Chinese buffet for dinner, I might not eat all day just so there's a lot of room and I get my money's worth at the Chinese buffet. I don't think that really snakes are going through that thought process. Uh, eating is a lot less predictable than it is for wild animals than it is for us. So I think if a snake sees a suitable prey item, it will not be thinking about what's happening later. It'll say, this is what is good for me now, and then it will eat that creature. What is the longest snake in the world? Kind of a tie between the pythons of Africa and Southeast Asia, like the rock python and the reticulated python, these things can get 20 to 25 feet long. And then in South America, uh, there is the anaconda, which probably isn't quite as long as the reticulated python, but they are heavier, they weigh more. So those are the biggest things in the world. Emily says, thank you for answering your questions. It's my pleasure. Sorry about the technical difficulties early on, but I've been looking forward to it and I'm glad we were able to make this work. Uh, I do want to say that if you have questions for me at another time, you can find me online. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Alongside Wild. That's also my tag on Instagram. Then on Facebook, it's backslash living alongside wildlife. So if you have questions after today, feel free to find me there.